You know, one of the best parts about having close friends or being married or having a really close sibling relationship is that you develop this habit where you know what each other are thinking. I couldn't help but think of that song in Frozen, you know, how crazy that we finish each other's sandwiches, you know, but, um, but th- it's true, you develop these friendships, right, where you, or these relationships where you just don't even have to talk about it. And so I had a friendship like this with my college roommate. His name was Josh. We lived together for two years, went to grad school together. I was the best man in his wedding. He was in mine. And when things would get particularly tough in, in 11, Colbert's in 1109, downtown Chicago, when we would have papers and finals, we were often jamming on like Taylor Swift's first album, like real loud. Uh, I don't know why, it's just what kind of got us through. And then if it got really bad, one of us would just say out loud, Chili's? And the other one would just get up and go put on his shoes and we would go to Chili's and uh, we would get queso and chips and Cokes because it was Bible college and that was really all we were allowed. So, um, and, uh, and, uh, and so we didn't have to ask, we just kind of always knew what each other were thinking in those tough seasons in our, in our room. Um, at a deeper level, there's other people who know us in ways that we don't know us, right? They see us clearly in some ways. I, I teach a guy's Bible study on Tuesday nights. Some of you guys are in that, it's a lot of fun. And we had a guy come a couple weeks and just drop out. And I said to Zach once, we were out, and I said, I don't know what I did or I said that made so-and-so leave. And he goes, why do you always do that? I said, what? He said, why is it every time that like somebody leaves Bible study or whatever, that you think it's your fault, that you said or did something? He, it's not your fault, dude. He just, he just left. And I was kind of blown away by that because I realized in that conversation, that's a room I go into a lot. When things fall apart, I'm always just like, well, I must have said or done something. But it's not always about me, right? Sometimes we have friends that know things about us that we don't know about us. And that's kind of how Jesus is. Jesus in the Gospel of John, just sees people so clearly and knows us. In John chapter two, very early on in the Gospel, it says that Jesus knew all about people, that no one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. I mean, Jesus knows what's in your heart. Jesus knows what's in your heart this morning. That could be great news. Because you might be walking through something or confused about something. Listen, if you've got more questions than answers about your life, this is the place to be. So you might be walking through something, and it's good to know that Jesus knows your heart. He knows what burdens it. But it might be bad news because there might be parts of our heart that we'd rather Jesus not see. It might be bad news because there's parts of our heart that we would prefer left untouched by Jesus. And because Jesus knows people and every person he encounters so deeply and so intimately, he's able to just cut past the crap. He's able to slide past that and push the masks aside and have a real conversation with the person he's talking to. And when we were in John 3 and John 4, we saw Jesus have some of those conversations. And so I want to return in these next four weeks to conversations Jesus has with people to see how what we can learn about having conversations with similar people in our lives and even the conversations that Jesus wants to have with us. And so this week we're talking about how Jesus talks to religious people. Next week we're talking to about uh, seeing how Jesus talks to people sinning the week after that, people who are suffering. And then the week after, the final week of this little four-week stint will be, um, how does Jesus speak to us in our failure? How does he speak to followers of his that have failed? And, and I'm really excited that'll, that'll be that, and then we'll jump into some stuff on the Holy Spirit. 
But today we're looking at how Jesus talks to religious people. You know, throughout John's gospel, Jesus is going toe to toe with religious folks over and over again. And it almost starts to get boring if you read it too much, because what it starts to feel like is Jesus does something really great and really cool and really wonderful. And everybody goes, ew, why'd you do that? I mean, it's so discouraging and disheartening, right? Jesus heals somebody, a guy that that hadn't walked for 32 years, Jesus heals, and the guy rolls up the mat that he used to lay on and tucks it under his arm and is walking, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, they look at him and go, excuse me, you're not allowed to walk on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to work, could you please put that down? Uh, Dude is walking for the first time in 32 years, and you're like, could you please put that down? I mean, it just happens over and over again. Jesus heals somebody, and they're like, you know, we don't do that in church. You know, Jesus, Jesus performs a miracle and they say, not on Sundays, my friend. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus is hanging out with people who really need him. Prostitutes and tax collectors, notorious sinners. And everybody's like, why are you spending time with those kinds of people? Somebody once said to me that, the, the, that God made the sky big enough that birds of different kinds can stay together. You know, we'll stay together in our group. Jesus stayed together with us in our group. And yet, over and over again, Jesus is having these conversations. And, and I want to be clear about something. Jesus isn't upset with Jews because of their Jewishness. The problem with, with Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law and scribes isn't their Jewishness. We don't want to be anti-Semitic. I mean, Jesus was a Jew himself. No, his problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, the problem is that they were religious. And Jesus has a problem with religion. But can I tell you the truth? That's good news because you and I have a problem with religion. Jesus doesn't like religious people. Good news, I don't like religious people either. I mean, they are party poopers and mean, and they post stuff on Facebook that nobody really cares about. I mean, as I'm saying this, you're picturing religious people in your head. What words would you use to describe the religious people in your life? Yell them out. Boring. Boring. What else? Judgmental. What else? Grumpy, unsocial. What else? Elite. Elite. What else? Somebody in our earlier service said, holier than thou, and stubborn, and bitter, judgmental, hypocritical, mean, grumpy, Vanessa, that was a good word. These are all words that come to our mind when we think of religious people, and Jesus sees this, and it makes him mad. Jesus flipped some tables, but it also makes his heart break. He wept over religious people. And so he wants to try to get their attention. So how does Jesus have conversations with religious people? We'll see in Luke chapter 15, but I I just want to help you understand what Jesus' problem with religion is. It's really two things. And the first is that really what Jesus came to do and what religion is are two very different things. You might think of yourself as a religious person. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm religious. Can I tell you, Jesus doesn't want you to use that word to describe you. He'd rather you say, I don't know, I follow Jesus. He would rather just say, I'm a Christian, but you're not religious because see, religion and the gospel are at cross purposes. That's why I put that chart in your bulletin, which as it turns out, when printed, requires a magnifying glass. So you're welcome for that. Um, It's very, very small font. um, but, But here's really what it comes down to. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. 
It says, I do all of these good things in order to earn God's favor in my life. But that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about having been given the favor and love and affection of the Father, we obey out of that place of affection. Because we want God more of him, because we want to delight in him and be like him, we do what God says so we can have more of him. Out of a posture of acceptance and being loved and chosen and cared for, we live differently. That's really what the heart of the gospel is. But religion flips all of that on its head and says, if you want to be accepted by God, if you want his love and his favor and his care, you better work hard, son. You better pile on good deed after good deed after good deed. And so religious people come across as perfect. And this is why they come across as perfect, because beneath that perfection, beneath that carefully crafted image of all the good things they've done is an overwhelming terror that they might not be good enough. And so out of that fear that they're not good enough, they just keep digging in deeper and working harder and working harder and working harder. And pretty soon they just get tired. Do you know why they're grumpy? Do you know why they're angry? Why they're mean? Why they're elite? It's because they're working so hard and they don't have anything to prove for it. They're working so hard to get God to do his end of the bargain. God, I'll keep up my end of the bargain if you keep up yours. But then all of a sudden somebody gets sick or they don't get the house that they wanted. They're not blessed in the way they thought they should be blessed. And pretty soon God's not keeping up his end of the bargain. And so we get mad at God. It's just like Yoda said, right? Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Because as they're getting angry at God because he's not keeping up his end of the bargain, then, then they're getting hateful towards those who God shows his grace to. Because here I am working so hard. Here I am going to church and giving the money and singing the songs and showing up and doing ministry and doing all this kind of stuff. And then this dude walks in and he smells bad and looks weird. And God's going to treat him the same way as he treats me? No, not on my watch. So we build a little club with a wall around it and says, you got to be this good to enter this ride. Don't work like that. That's not what Jesus came to do. This is contrary to the gospel because it doesn't want us to be free, afraid. We are no longer slaves to fear. We're no longer slaves to fear. You know, the other problem Jesus has with religion is that it doesn't draw people near to him. So these religious people do all of these things for God. They do all of these right and righteous things, but Jesus looks at them in the, in the New Testament and he looks at them today and he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Guys, it is possible to spend your life going to church and singing the songs and giving the money and serving on the committee and doing all the right things and to never get an inch closer to God because you're doing all of these things for God to get God to do what you want, but you're never doing them with him. And that's really the aim of the gospel is that we would be with him. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And so Jesus sees the religion in the hearts of these Jewish leaders. Again, not the problem that they're Jewishness, the problem is their religion. And he gets mad. I mean, Jesus flips tables and yells. He uses nasty words for religious people. He says, he says you are, you're a brood of vipers. You're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. I mean, that, snap, those are fighting words. You know what I mean? And, and, and he uses all these words. He flips tables and yells. He weeps over religious people because they, their hearts aren't soft for him. And, 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 and so what does Jesus do to try to get their attention? In Luke 15, he gets their attention with a story. In Luke 15, Jesus gets his atten their attention with a story. You know, the Gospel of John focuses a lot on the theological debates between the, the religious people and Jesus. But Luke 15, in the story I'm going to have you hear, really gets to the heart of why there's a difference. And it's found in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And the, and the story says this, chapter 15 of Luke, verses 11 through 32. 
To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. At about that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the young man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one would give him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, self, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'm going to go home to my father, and I'm going to say, father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. You know, a church in South Dakota that I like a lot, they're called Embrace Church because of this. And I'm like, gosh darn it, cooler name. Okay. (laughs) Filled with love and compassion, ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being calling your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, quick servants, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf that we've been fattening. For we must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Man, we love this story. Man, if you grew up in youth group, prodigal son is your jam. You know what I mean? Like you can be welcomed back into the father's presence, but we forget about the back half of the story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. This is why Christians didn't like dancing. Dancing. My father-in-law says that's a vertical expression of a horizontal desire. Think about it. Think about it. Okay. Sees these people dancing. Okay, I lost my place. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and we're celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. And his father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. And his father said to him, look, dear son, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. You know, we read this story and we love the welcome that the younger son receives, don't we? We love to know that no matter how great our failings or our sin, that when we turn to God, he comes running. And I will tell you, that is true today. That is true today, that if you have messed up if you have failed, if you have faltered, the gospel says that there is no place better for you than your father's house. And when you come home, he will come running and he will put a ring on your finger and a robe on your shoulders and sandals on your feet because we are his children. No longer slaves of fear, we are his children. And yet, while we're comforted by the welcome of the younger son, we're kind of put off by the anger of the older son. Because how is it possible 
that this younger son, his brother, they thought was dead is now back. How is it possible that he's mad about this? How is it possible that he's grumpy about this? How is it possible that he's being elitist about this? How is it possible that he's being so hypocritical? Here's what this story really is about, is that the father sees the older son and the younger son as equally lost. This is not the story of the lost son. It's the story of the lost sons. It's not the story of the prodigal son, it's the story of the prodigal sons. You see, here's, this, here's the context of this. When you're reading scripture, you gotta pay attention to context. And Luke chapter 15, verses one through three, clue us into the context of this. It says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. This is not a story that Jesus tells to you and I in our failure. This is not a story that Jesus tells to us in our failure so that we can know we can come home. This is a story Jesus tells to older brothers. This is the story that Jesus tells to the religious among us. And, and for two, there's, there's, there's two ways this is gonna work out in this community either as a warning or a rebuke. Because the longer you're in church, the higher the likelihood is that you're going to become the religious person that you don't like. The longer you're in church, the higher the likelihood is that you're gonna become the religious person you don't like. And so this text is a warning to us, but it might also be a rebuke. Because this isn't bashing, let's get honest, this isn't bashing religious people in their 60s and 70s. Because 20-something Christians can be just as older brotherish about things as this can. This is not bashing conservatives. Liberals can be just as older brotherish as anybody else. So it's either a warning or a rebuke or a mix of both. And so I want to help us see three signs of older brother lostness. Because catch this, this story isn't about lost, a lost younger brother, but it's also a story about lost older brothers because the older brother is as lost in his self-righteousness, he's as lost in his self-righteousness as the younger brother is lost in his self-discovery, in this journey of doing whatever feels right. That's what the younger son's doing. He's just doing whatever feels good. He's just running off and he's, what do we say as millennials? We're trying to figure ourselves out. I'm dating me right now. The younger son's dating me. He's on this journey of self-discovery, but the older brother is just as lost in his self-righteousness. And so what are three signs of older brother lostness? Three symptoms. The first is this. You know, we know that the older brother and younger brother are lost, equally lost, because they both want relationship with their father, not for who their father is, but what the father can give them. Both the older brother and the younger brother want relationship with the father, not just to be known by the father, but for what the father can give them. Because, you know, the younger son says, Dad, I want my half of the inheritance. Imagine if you were out to dinner with your parents this week and you said, Mom and Dad, here's the deal. You know, you're not dying fast enough, and I'm really tight right now. Could we just liquidate some stuff? And your parents go, yeah, sure. Then you, then you go to Vegas. You jump that Allegiant flight out of Youngstown, you get down to Vegas, boom, in a week, you're crawling back home, catching the Greyhound, because, because, because you spent it all, and you come crawling back. You see, we're so stunned by that. How could somebody spit in their dad's face like this? But listen to the words of the older brother. He says, I've, I've slaved for you. I've never once refused to do a single thing you've told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one thing. You're developing an older brother lostness when your obedience is really just to get something from God. God, I want to be blessed. I want the house. I want the marriage. I want the relationship. I want my kids to be okay. I don't ever want to hear the word cancer. 
I don't ever want to have to be low on money. I don't ever want to have to. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, God falls down on his job. He's somehow not picking up on your obedience points. And suddenly something starts to happen. You get mad. Because God's not paying attention. God, here I am doing all this work. The sun. It's like, dude, get out the tiniest violin in the world, right? Like, all these years, I've worked for you. But oh man, we get that way when God doesn't do what we want him to do. And we get mad. That's the second sign of older brother lostness. Is that our spirituality is marked more by anger than joy. I mean, when the younger son returns, the older brother is mad. That's the first word in verse 28. The older brother was angry. He won't even call him my brother. He says, this son of yours, which I'm told happens in marriages with kids, right? Well, your son is behaving in such and such a way. Well, when was he my son, you know? They get mad, older brothers, religious people, and they get mad because their obedience goes unrewarded. They get mad because they've worked so hard in this relationship and this spirituality thing and God's not paying attention. They get so mad when we say the most important person in the room is the person who's not here yet. Because they say, well, what about me? What about all the work I've done? What about how often I've served, how often I've given? What about the money that I gave you to perform how I wanted you to perform? See, religious people also get mad at their pastors when pastors won't just perform religious goods and services for them. I pay my dues so that you give me this, 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 and this. But the church is only the church when it exists for the sake of others. And so they get mad when we start reaching new people because they also find out how in the world can God give his grace and favor to people like that, to addicts, to whatever, but that's who God is. How can God give his grace to divorcees? How can God give his grace to this one? Take a chill pill, my friend, because he gave you his. He gave you his grace. Anger is dangerous because it clouds our joy. Joy is the highest, most noticeable marker of someone who's been with Jesus. They smile. They laugh. Listen, you can be in church. You've got people in here that are raising their hands and jumping up and down and smiling. You don't have to be that person. You can be a person that's not super expressive in worship and still be found joyful. But religious people, older brothers, see the songs and they, smile, they, they listen to them with a frown. They hear the sermon. I've already heard all that. They're earnest, they're diligent, but they're bored and boring. You know, finally, a, a sign of older brother lostness is when you stamp your feet and you just don't go with it. Because you, you notice this, that, that both the younger brother and the older brother are sought after by the father. You know, the younger son leaves and as he's coming up the road, the younger brother busts, the, older, the father, I mean, busts out of the house to go get him. Meanwhile, the, younger, the older brother's standing outside and the father busts out of the party to go to him. A, a sign of older brother lostness is that we, we won't go into the party. So we see God doing a new thing and we go, that's not for me. Kyle's gonna get up at this fall and start talking about missional communities and people of peace, about Kairos moments, about how God can totally transform us. You're gonna go, you know what, Kyle, here's all I really want. I want my religious good and service and I'm gonna go home. That anger turns into to non-participation. You know, at the end of his ministry, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He looked at this city that he loved and he weeps. In Matthew 25, it says, Jerusalem, the city that, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, 
and you would not. You see, Jesus has come to rescue religious people from their religion. He has come to rescue older brothers, and older brothers are not interested. They stay outside the party. Do you know that's how the story ends? The story of Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal sons, ends, and the older brother hasn't gone in. He just stays outside. He just stays outside. And it's as if Jesus is telling this story about older brothers and younger brothers and fathers who go to both, about anger and hatred and judgmentalism and and cross-purposes of the gospel. And and he's talking and telling the story, and it's almost in my mind's eye, I see Jesus look up, and he looks at me. He looks up, and he looks at me, the elder brother that won't go into the party, and he opens the door, and he just stands outside and looks at you. The end of the story is unfinished because it puts a decision in front of us, and the decision is, will we go into the party or not? You know, some of us have hearts that are just icier than frozen burritos, and they are hard as a rock. And in this story, God is like taking our hearts and sticking them in a microwave, of, like sticking them in a microwave of his grace. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement, was a Christian and a pastor for most of his life until in his 30s, he was in a place where he was listening to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Martin Luther's commentary on Romans chapter 1, verses 16, 17, 18, he's hearing it read, and he says, all of a sudden, my heart was strangely warm. It was as if God's grace finally got a hold of me. It's as if I finally understood for the first time. You see, Jesus is like the Father who comes and seeks and finds us so that we would be with him and our joy would be full. But we like rules. We like God in a box. And so we would rather stay outside the party. So the question is, how do we get in the party? It's kind of left to us, right? Jesus leaves us this choice. I think it comes down to this. We have to choose to repent not only of the bad things we have done, but also the good ones. We have to choose to repent not only of the bad things we have done, but the good things we have done. C.S. Lewis says that we understand that to become a Christian, we have to repent of our badness, but people don't understand you also have to repent of your goodness. Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. All our righteous deeds are like the the snot rags in the garbage when you've got the cold. All our righteous deeds are, quite literally, used feminine hygiene products. And so Paul says, anything done without faith is sin. See, we have to repent not only of the bad things we have done, but also the good things that we have done apart from him the good things that we have done because we thought we were pleasing him, but the good things that we have done without him. So we have to lay down our anger and our judgment and the good things we have done, the ways that we manipulate God, lay down the, the good things and the bad we've done and run into the party to find not religion, but relationship, to find a Jesus who says, come to me all who are, who are laboring and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. Let's pray. Jesus, we would come to you today to take our yoke, this yoke upon you. And upon ourselves, we, we don't want to be caught in religion any longer. We don't want our friends who are just bitter and angry in religion to be caught in that any longer. And so we pray that you would equip us in the way that we have conversations that we might uh, experience you in fresh ways, in rest and in gentleness and humility. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.